The questions we're asking internally are, do we actually continue with our pre-existing roadmap and say, well, you know, 2020 will be the year we look back on and say, we didn't hit our targets. Nothing that we do is gonna bring in, you know, eight million more people this year. There's nothing up our sleeves that says, oh, look, we've just had this alternative to Love Island sitting on the shelf. The key thing is not the knee-jerk reaction and the overreaction is so tempting to say, well, should we discount this? Should we give it away for a, a different amount? You have to kind of really think, are those decisions possible to come back from? And I think that's, that's where our heads are at the moment. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. I'm Mada, and I'm the host for How I Grew This. Hi, everyone. We're excited to have our next guest, Stuart Jones. Stuart is currently the head of product for ITV Hub, an on-demand streaming service in the UK, and has previously worked on products like KFC, Nando's, one of my favorites, and The Telegraph. Stuart, it's so awesome to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, these are really interesting times. How are you holding up? How's the ITV doing during this time? Uh, how has your life changed? It's been really interesting. It's been nearly two months now since we've been on lockdown in the UK. And lots of change. You know, overnight, it, we went from, certainly from a work perspective, you know, from a, a kind of very much in the office altogether uh, team, or certainly company, to one that's remote, you know, 100% remote. And from a family perspective, for me, you know, I went from being a kind of, uh, you know, a worker nine to five, Monday to Friday, to being a worker slash teacher. Though, to be fair, my wife has done the majority, if not all, of the teaching work for them. I think I'm more of a disruptor. I go downstairs and actually um, disrupt the flow of the of the home education. So, yeah, it's been a lot of adaption, but I think it's been really interesting for for us, both as a company, as a family, to try and see how we can, you know, deal with a situation like this. Yeah, that's really interesting. Tell me a little bit about, you know, how have you like personally adapted any trips or tricks that have helped you like stay sane and productive during this time? Yeah, I think it definitely took some adaption, certainly from, I think for me, weirdly, the, the, the biggest kind of shock was sort of dealing with the volume of meetings that we we're having on a daily basis. I was always conscious of it in the office that meetings certainly... Uh, there's a kind of, um, I wouldn't say a meeting culture per se at ITV, but you know, we want to make sure that there's an all-inclusiveness to what we, we do. So we involve many people in these discussions. So the adaption to trying to deal with a large group of people on a, on a Zoom or Google Hangout and give people the opportunity to speak, I think it just introduced a new dynamic to, to team meetings, to planning sessions and ideation sessions. And so for us, it was kind of how we, we adapt to that. And I think Certainly what we've done is try and reduce down the number of, or certainly the size of meetings that we're having. So it's no good really having, you know, 19, 20 people on a call and expecting productivity to come from that. So I think for us, our adaption has been to try and reduce the duration of meetings, but also reduce the number of people who are in there. So the contribution uh, becomes kind of more about quality than, than quantity. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's like a really interesting point. I would say that on our side, we probably have more meetings. We were not a meeting culture and it's like yeah. so much harder to stay connected. And those interactions 
that were in the office don't happen as much. So yeah. yeah, how do you keep that? I mean, that balance is very hard, right? Yeah, it is. And I thrive off the, the kind of interaction, those, you know, we call them water cooler moments where you, you do generate ideas. And I've always knew that about myself is that my best ideas come from talking with other people and kind of building on an idea with somebody else is, is kind of how I've, I've generated kind of my best thinking. So to be left alone and trying to find ways of doing that over uh, over calls has become more of a challenge for me. I'm hoping to carry on adaption. I think the, the, the challenge for us is how much do we adapt before we accept that you know, we're going to go back to a different way of life again and require another adaption later in the year when we're allowed to return back to work. So, Stuart, we did our homework and found that uh, you started uh, 25 years ago when you were working as an engineer apprentice for an airplane manufacturer, and then you've worked in food, and now you're uh, with ITV. Tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get into mobile? How did you get from being uh, an airplane engineer <laughs> to mobile? I think, you know, a lot of it, de it depends where you kind of grow up in the area that you grow up in. For me, I grew up in the northern part of the UK and it was a very industrial area where there was a lot of manufacturing plants. And so my dad worked in aviation. He was in aviation for 30 years. So for me, you know, seeing him go off to work and work with aeroplanes, certainly as a, as a young kid, it's kind of quite aspirational to go and do that as well. And so when I kind of um, I, I decided to do an apprenticeship in engineering, and quite quickly, I started realizing that it wasn't the right fit for me. You know, it was a very hands-on labor approach to engineering. And so I looked at, you know, other areas and it was probably around 1995, 1996, so a long, long time ago. And the internet had just started coming into, into school. So I literally remember, you know, the, the first time I was able to search for something on the internet and get a set of results back. And when I try and explain to my, my kids, I've got two kids now that are five and nine, it's, it's I can't believe this, you know, they will never remember what their, their first interaction is with the internet. And for me, I can. So for me, it was quite a fork, really. You know, it was a real kind of moment of there is another world out there that I'd never been exposed to before that excited me. So leaving the engineering apprenticeship, I went to do a computing apprenticeship and then spent time sort of learning the disciplines of of kind of software engineering so a different type of engineering and actually got a job with a local pension company and I was programming pension software and it's it, it literally is as dry as it actually sounds you know it's a very dark art you know there's, there's there's so much complexity with pensions anyway but then you kind of combine that with software engineering and it becomes even more complex and for me it just didn't invigorate me but luckily I got a job with with KPMG and uh, KPMG uh, working within their software company for, for pension software again. But it allowed me to kind of see the inner workings of a big organization and a big technology firm and be exposed to the more operational kind of side of tech. And, you know, I'm not going to go through my, my CV verbatim, but I kind of I used that experience then to sort of say, well, pensions isn't what I enjoy, but technology is. And what other opportunities are out there within the technology sector that I can apply myself to? So I'd spent some time with Accenture looking at, at release management, so very much along the, the ITIL framework, and then um, went to work for a, a different sector altogether, so working for Betfair. They're you know, a huge online gambling company uh, globally now. And you know, each time I kind of made a hop to a different sector, I gained another level of experience that I took with me onto the next. And I found myself 
going back about 10 years now, maybe at Channel 4. And Channel 4 was my first experience with, with television. And a lot happened for me at Channel 4 that was, was kind of a coming together, I guess, of things I really liked and in the industry I really liked. So I enjoyed technology and digital and we were experimenting with applications at the time. And then product management was a sort of division at Channel 4 I never really knew existed. And when I started learning more about product management and how a product manager is the voice of the customer and bringing together the kind of empathy and, and passion to technology, I thought, well, this, this is a great kind of coupling for me. It's, it's both what I enjoy technology applications which is about you know the kind of innovation of of tech at the moment in time and then also working with you know just subject matters that I really enjoyed so I then stayed with the media went to work for the telegraph and I was uh, looking after the IOS application for the telegraph which is a large newspaper in the UK and then moving between different types of sectors as a contractor picking up experience as a product manager within those sectors as well I think gave me this this kind of things started to come together for me as a jigsaw. And once I really understood that product management and tech innovation was what I really enjoyed, I found my passion and in kind of career started to merge into one. And that's how I kind of then went from different sectors, but taking a, a kind of a different perspective and bringing in different perspectives to those sectors as I came in. So it's been a, it's been a strange road for me. I wouldn't necessarily recommend my career path to my children because there's lots of there's lots of times when I've been sort of despondent about what I, what it was I was doing, but I'm happy to say you now I've found my feet in product management. That's really awesome. And tell us a little bit about what you do at ITV right now uh, as a head of product. What is ITV for those of uh, our listeners who don't know it? So ITV is a, a very large UK broadcaster. So we are a very kind of similar sized kind of viewership to the BBC. And we have a, a free-to-air television model. So we're, we're ad-funded effectively. So I'm head of product for the hub. And so for me, that's around uh, making sure that the ITV, uh, the ITV hub, I should say, is our on-demand um, service. So you can watch uh, catch-up programs or you could watch uh, simulcast. So you can watch in line with what's being broadcast at that moment in time. Certain shows that your audience might know, uh, Love Island is a is a big ITV product for us. Yeah, yeah, massive. I have uh, I've seen the ads. Oh, really? It yeah. looks really fun. It does, and it wouldn't look fun this year, unfortunately. Though with what's going on, it's it's going to be a dent in our our schedule as it stands at the moment. X Factor, another big program of ITVs, and Who Wants to Be a, Mil- a Millionaire? You know, they generate millions and millions of viewers, and the hub is is around trying to make sure that. The online experience is is there now. You know, we are in a it's a shift in technology sector for us. You know, VOD is so uh, prevalent at the moment, and you'll you'll hear kind of VOD wars being talked about. And for ITV, it's about making sure you know that we're in battle because our competitors move at a very rapid rate, and we they don't wait for for they don't look at the competition to try and improve themselves. They're just innovations. You know, they're innovatives. Um, and I think for us, we want to make sure that we are certainly kind of competing with with the very, very biggest players in the VOD sector. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about how you guys acquire users, retain. How do you think about your the user journey and how has that changed during this crazy time? Yeah, so it's definitely changed. And I think, you know, just to touch on the the, the television making process and how that's been impacted by by COVID. So 
I'm sure you know that, you know, TV programs are complicated things to make. You know, there's commissioners, you know, all the way from commissioners, makeup artists, camera operators, set designers, producers. There's there's a there's a whole load of people, not including, you know, not least the actors who actually go in to make a, a television program. And it, it requires people to come together, often, you know, even physically very closely and make this this kind of, you know, all these these kind of great shows. You can't do that remotely. You can't do that online. So the TV industry as a whole has, has taken a, a kind of a sizable whack during this. And, you know, like I said, we're, we're an ad-funded industry. And so, you know, the ad market has also taken an impact from this. So it's not, you know, you don't have to kind of have a leap of imagination to see how much this has affected television as a whole. So I think for us, it's about trying to make sure that we we look at growth and forecasting on a on a daily basis so we kind of typically forecasted once a year and we often tracked very well against those measures because you can see a very clear relationship between types of content and how many viewers we're going to achieve in a certain amount of time love island is a good example so we used to see a huge huge spike year on year for the show and we roughly knew how many people were going to come in and often we were very accurate at predicting that so this is this is kind of blown all of our forecasting out the window so our forecasting team are daily now trying to sort of understand the behavior of the customer so they can kind of give us the product team enough information to be able to adapt to change and that for us is is how every single day since we've been certainly in lockdown we've seen a new challenge that we we haven't potentially anticipated or you know an existing challenge that's suddenly reshaped because of covid and what's been going on so for us at the moment, it's very much about adaption and it's, un, you know, some tested territory. Are our predictions right? Time will tell. But, you know, what we're seeing, what we're, what we're encouraged by is people are watching television still. People are being making allowances for changes in schedules because they appreciate uh, how, what, what's kind of going on. But we've also seen a, a big kind of relationship back with the family again. So the kind of shared viewing experience is kind of really taken off. So we're seeing people not, you know, watching TV in the bedroom and in the living room and in the kitchen at the same time, but watching television together. And that's a really interesting dynamic that we never anticipated would happen. That's really interesting. I think we've seen this, like, I think we had these graphs and we were looking at uh, trends and everything was social in it. Uh, is doing yeah. so much better. I think people are really looking for connections, uh, whether it's with the people that they're with in their in their homes or if they're by themselves, like me, looking for connection online. And uh, and it's interesting, you know, I find that, you know, our, our biggest programs are the likes of Coronation Street and Emmerdale, you know, outside of Love Island, which are big soaps in the UK. And people really depend on them. You know, it's a massive part of their lives is the is the kind of goings-on of, of, the, of the families in these shows. And so, you know, we're starting to get to the point of, of looking at how we distribute the content we've got over a prolonged period of time, which then is, is kind of disappointing. You know, the viewers want to have that constant reconnection with people on a daily basis. But because of the way the kind of timelines uh, are for shows like this, COVID isn't in the storyline of the programmes necessarily. So I think for them, it's an escapism as well. It's it's a kind of escapism, an alternate reality almost. And it's interesting to see how people kind of want that more than ever now, is that escapism, but with familiar, familiar 
kind of people and family around them too. And I don't know about yourself, but you know, I've I've, I've started kind of using platforms like Twitch more because there is something about platforms like Twitch which are more about of a connection with individuals and with people than than perhaps kind of a you know a, a, a kind of binge watchable drama if you like. Honestly, I'm nervous about that. I um I am a very avid mobile gamer and I uh, I I played one where I was like part of a clan and man it got to the <laughs> point where people were messaging me during a board meeting that my thing was getting attacked so I I try to stay away now. <laughs> I try to play games with no social connection because yeah. <laughs> once they suck you in, that's it. You're in. You're in. No but I, again, right? I definitely part, felt such part of that community. It was a bunch of like thirteen-year-old kids who were in my clan, and they had yeah. my number, and it, it served a purpose during a time when I was feeling very lonely. So yeah, that's it. And it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes they're not conscious decisions that people make. You just naturally get drawn to an area that you just you know like my kids for example it's kind of completely off topic but my youngest one has started carrying around a little kind of um, lion with him everywhere he goes and he never would have done that normally but because he's not seeing his friends he's probably made a subconscious adaption to it and I think with technology people are probably doing the same thing as well and that's why you know we are there probably is an increase in using platforms like Twitch maybe not consciously i never consciously wanted to go on it more than i did it just it just happened i gravitated towards it yeah yeah and are you guys thinking of any ways you can take advantage of that in the way you think about product are you building more social sharing interaction things like that yeah i think the rate of change within you know our sector is it's difficult i think there's, there's there's very few people who are set up to adapt so quickly that things are kind of bearing fruit straight away you know and Two months is really all we've had so far. We've, we've, we had a pre-existing pipeline, a product roadmap that we were kind of confident in at the start of the year. And, and now we've kind of had to sort of look at it and think, well, should we be adapting to this or should we stick to, the, to our, kind of, our, our kind of guns on this? Uh, we have, a, we have a, a kind of ad-free service called Hub Plus where you can pay uh, £3.99 a month, £3.99 a month, and you can experience ITV ad-free. And because the content is in a kind of different space, the, the major driving factor for this, again, was Love Island for us. That's not there now. So the questions we're asking internally are, do we spend time trying to try and, you know, bring in a small fraction of the people that we would have got in for Love Island? Or do we actually continue with our pre-existing roadmap and say, well, you know, 2020 is just gonna, is, will be the year we look back on and say we didn't hit our targets because of Love Island. Nothing that we do is going to bring in you know, 8 million more people this year. There's nothing up our sleeves that says, oh, look, we've just had this alternative to Love Island sitting on the shelf. Here it is. So we just have to accept that the numbers aren't going to be as attractive as we wanted them to be. But I think the key thing, and it's kind of to your question about reaction, is not the, the knee-jerk reaction and the overreaction is so tempting. And it's so tempting to say, well, it's three Let's let, Should we discount this? Should we give it away for a, a different amount? But you have to kind of really think are those decisions possible to come back from and i think that's that's where our heads are at the moment yeah and i i mean i think that's a really interesting i think everyone is is talking about that i was just i was on a call with a few founders and someone said that he thinks the biggest mistake he's made so far is to give to give his product for free for a while because he made previous uh, customers angry and he devalues your product but at the same time it's so much harder right now to actually get people to pay. So yeah, yeah, it's not. I don't think there's like a clean answer. I think I think it is better 
to give it for free for a while, then discount it. Because once you've discounted, putting the price back up. Yeah, exactly. It's very challenging. I know there was that case in the States years ago with, you know, the one pound, one dollar increase to Netflix and the kind of backlash that, that came from that. And I think it's, it's you know, it's people, the other thing with, with finances at the moment in the UK, is, I'm sure it's similar everywhere in the world, people are being very money conscious. Exactly. And they no one's no one's taking out, you know, unnecessary subscriptions or continuing on with subscriptions as well. And it's how much you kind of, you, you lean into the, 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 the kind of what's going on out there at the moment. I think it's about flexibility. I think all the decisions we make are based on, is this right for this moment in time? And can we look at reversing that decision later on as well? And I think it's hard for companies that, you know, maybe haven't sort of crossed the chasm yet. And we're at that sort of tipping point, how they manage that experience between, um, you know, pre-lockdown, lockdown, coming out of lockdown, because it, it, business models are being sabotaged everywhere. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I think it's, uh, some people are doing really well, depending, you know, I have people in the food business, friends who are like about to go out of business and now they're thriving. But what's going to happen after? I think there's just so, going to be so much change over the next year. It's a very interesting time. Switching gears, I think you've you've had some like amazing experiences and work from some iconic brands, I would say. Any interesting growth stories and, and features or um, things that you've implemented in the product to drive growth? It can be at ITV, but also maybe in the past at some of the other companies you've worked at. I think growth is a, is a real difficult subject to kind of wrestle with. And when certainly when I was working for the food companies, so Nando's and, and KFC as well, my, my kind of remit there was to kind of ideate and, and establish their online delivery services for them door to door and to grow them. So with, in the case of KFCs, it was to grow that across Europe as well as the UK. So Nando's has got 400-ish restaurants in the UK. KFC's got 700, and they've, they've got uh, thousands more across the world as well. And so for them, both of their kind of growth markets were roughly the same types of people you know and the the com- sort of competition at the time was very much deliveroos and the just eats of this world and when you start a project like home delivery you have to try and set out what the measurement of growth has to be and what that measure of success needs to be not just for yourself and for your product team but for the expectations of the customer and for the expectations of the business and with KFC as a sort of prime example, they're a franchisee, so they're a franchise-based um, company on the whole, a, a big percentage of them are. And to try and satisfy the needs of so many franchisees in different parts of the of Europe and the UK is incredibly difficult because they see growth as being something which you make a, a small investment and you get a large investment back over time. With software development and engineering, that can be very difficult to try and manage the expectations around. And so for if you take KFC as an example, building a delivery service, which is now really successful, it took a lot of careful uh, management by some really, really great people um, to sort of deal with franchisees and manage the expectations of growth for them as well. And as a kind of operational growth, I think that was a really interesting experience for me personally to see going from kind of two to three restaurants to convincing the business that we should expand this operation to kind of 15 30 restaurants on the basis of you know small what what look like small numbers and i think for us as a certainly as a product team it's about explaining the difference between good errors and bad errors when it comes down to 
what growth looks like. You know, a good error is something that gives you feedback that you can react to and iterate upon. And a bad error is something that, you know, you never anticipated. If you don't change immediately, it's going to be detrimental to your to your business. And I think the, the food sector certainly taught me that around growth, around setting the expectations of people early on, having those key metrics of people. People typically want to see certainly the, the kind of upper tier you go within a company. They want to see those uh, lagging metrics. That's what really matters to them. Whereas, you know, from a product team, it's about the leading metrics and see, understanding what's kind of being triggered. Yeah. Yeah. That's really difficult to try and explain to, to people who aren't in a technology background anyway, who have invested their own money to try and see growth, a substantial amount of money to see growth. So that for me was a really good kind of learning curve. Yeah, that's a very good, that's a very interesting lesson. Yeah, I think where we, where I've, I've seen a similar sort of lesson was when I was working for a, a job board company. So people would buy space to advertise jobs. It's very, very big kind of across Europe. And we, we built a suite of applications for job seekers. And we, we did this typical thing of, well, this is an app and these are the metrics that kind of merit what a good app is. And we were really proud of, of the apps we built. Apple featured them in their app store and it got a huge amount of download and tractions on day one. And we were super pumped thinking, no, oh, this is brilliant. We've done a really good job. The real insight came though when people started to sort of leave and uninstall the application. And it's like, well, you know, why are so many people uninstalling this application once they've said it's really good? The reason is, is because once you've, as a job seeker, once you've found a job, you no longer want a job seeking app on your phone. It doesn't serve any purpose to you at all. Yeah. Other than taking up space. But for us, it's kind of, again, it was really, what metrics should we be setting here? Because we're trying to get people off this application. Really, you know, if, if that's our measure of success, then, you know, we're doing our job. But... So we have to change it. We have to look at things like the customer satisfaction and NPS scores and CSAT scores. That was a better indicator for us of growth, that people were finding opportunities with inside our application. And again, you know, another kind of mismeasurement really was if we, the more jobs we can serve to people, the better the application is. But in reality, it's the more relevant jobs that you serve is actually better for that customer. And again, you know, it's good churn, bad churn, debate, you know, it was it's good churn if someone finds a job and leaves. It's bad churn if they don't find a job and still leave because they, they think there's better platforms out there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I think growth is something which has to be caveated. It has to be defined early on. And I think that's the only opportunity. That's the only way you really measure the success story around growth is to make sure that you've got the right metrics in place to really communicate to the customers in the business. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, when you think about the way you want to drive growth and, and using tools and things like that, I know that this idea, and, and we encountered this uh, when we tried to get people, when we talked to people about using branch, this idea of build versus buy. And we expected that in this time, maybe people would want to actually build more, but we find the opposite, that people are interested in buying because maybe they have less resources to build something themselves. How do you think about building something versus buying a tool that already does it from a company's perspective? It's a really highly debated topic, certainly within, within ITV at the moment. And I think, you know, from being in technology for as, as long as I have, there's, I've seen it goes in cycles. And there is a, a trend one minute of, of wanting to in-house, and it's almost you know, like a kind of balloon inflating, deflating, you know, one minute it's bring everybody in. 
the next minute is let's take everybody out. And I think, you know, from my experience, what happens is it really comes down to a lot of, it's a, it's a real financial decision that ultimately gets made that dictates this. I think the idyllic world is that, you know, people do build themselves in-house and they get to the point where that then suddenly doesn't work at scale. And then you go outsource and you think, well, this is working at scale. And then you think, well, we're losing, we're losing the kind of flexibility of doing in-house development. Let's bring them all back in again. And I don't think any company has ever kind of just drawn a line under that conversation and said, we're now happy from, from here on in, no more debate about it. It's always going to be in-house. I think everyone always has it as an open question. And that's why it seems so fluid, because the question's always there. Are we doing the right thing with the resources that we've got at scale? And, but I think finan- the financial factor plays a huge question mark over that. I mean, for me personally, I'd love to uh, build a product, have everyone in the room collaboratively working together uh, right from the beginning of, of the ideation through to the development and the support of that application as well. But I don't think it, it kind of it, it does work at, at, at scale really i think it has to be more more flexible and i also think there's the data is brought and data science has brought some tremendous service kind of expertise externally and you know working with companies like like branch has been excellent for us because we've been able to uh, you know expand our own understanding of certain products and branch have got some fantastic people who and not, not a sales pitch for branch but you know working with branch it's it's people like branch that allow us to be better at our jobs as well. And I think that that's the key, is finding the partnership that allows you to grow alongside the growth of somebody else. And then it's symbiotic. And the effort you put in, you ultimately get back. And there's a level of, I think, authenticity. And certainly from dealing with Branch and other companies as well. For me, when I deal with a third party, if there's an authentic nature to that person I'm dealing with or to the company and it feels genuine, it's not just about trying to grab your, you know, your business um, because it's there to be grabbed. It's about forming relationships. That for me is the big differentiator. Oh, thank you for saying that. That's awesome. That that makes me very happy to hear. So when you think about your individual growth and how you've gotten here, uh, and you kind of alluded to that earlier that maybe you wouldn't give the same advice to your your children. Uh, but what kind of advice would you give to someone who's starting their career and they're thinking of going into product? Because I started a working career so young uh, in the office. I was in an office at sort of 17. Um, you know, I was really intimidated by hierarchy at the time. And I think for me, it's always been one of those kind of stigmas, I guess, is that just because someone's kind of more senior than you are or is more experienced you know, than you are, your opinion still matters. And I think the clarity, you know, trying to just be, have the confidence to clear up subjects you don't understand, I think is a tremendously powerful thing. And the biggest kind of lesson I've learned is that, you know, the older and, you know, the kind of wiser, I guess you could say, I've got, you, you, the less you do, it's true, you, the less you do understand. And I think for me, you know, working in, in product now for a number of years, I'm still comfortable now asking product questions about products and two product managers that perhaps going back 10 years, 10 years or so ago, I would have been too afraid to ask because I thought I should have known what the answer was. And so my advice would be, you know, if you can't understand it, there's probably someone else in the room who can't either. And even if there isn't, it doesn't matter. What matters is you leave that room fully understanding what your position is, what the requirement is, and I think that for me would be the, the kind of advice I'd, I'd give to someone else. 
I would like to end with these three fun questions. First one is, if you had to delete all the apps you had on your phone and you could only keep one, what would you keep? Uh, well, I use I use Reddit so often. And, um, you know, it's my kind of go-to app at times of need, at times of, you know, wanting some humor um, to find out what's going on with sport. I, I genuinely don't think I could live without uh, Reddit. And so for me, yeah, I, would, I think I would keep that app. I love that. I love how, mm. you know, you would expect that a lot of questions would be the same, but I can't think of every single person has a different app. So I think that has been very interesting <laughs> to me. That's good. Uh, and then if you could have an app to talk to one animal, what animal would that be? Uh, well, there's this, what we believe is a fox in our back garden. That's terrorizing. It's such a kind of sorry thing to say in the UK, but every morning we're going out there and there's, there's things torn to shreds. So it'd be great to just be able to communicate and say, what is it you want? We can give you it. Just stop eating our stuff. Oh. <laughs> okay. That's a very, also a very unique new one. <laughs> And then what's the most unlikely app on your phone? Since we've we've all been in lockdown, the, the kind of, I'm not sure what it's like where you guys are, but uh, doing quizzes with people has become kind of the new norm for us. And every few days I'm doing a quiz with, with in-laws, with people from work, with friends. And it's really exposed how terrible my geography is. What kind of quizzes? Like trivia? Yeah, yeah, trivia quizzes constantly. I'm not sure if it's a, if a British thing or not. No, no, it, it, I, it's definitely everywhere else, but it's just like so interesting. It is trivia, constant trivia all the time. And every time we get to a geography round, I just I think, oh, yeah, geography again. So I've downloaded a world map and I'm trying to re-educate myself on <laughs> uh, the geography of the planet. So I'm not kind of uh, left embarrassed at the end of it. I love that. That's awesome. So the quizzes <laughs> are, are getting you to learn more about geography and history. That, that's that's right. Yeah, not out of choice. Out of just want, not wanting to be embarrassed at the end of <laughs> when, it, when that round comes up. That's amazing. <laughs> well, this was super interesting. And I just think the way you think about the definition of growth, about um, growing someone's career, I think the, your advice is awesome. And we really appreciate your time. You. And it was great having you on the show. Uh, likewise, I really appreciate the time and the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.